Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Alex Thompson, writing in Political Magazine, says political taboos, campaign deal breakers, and electoral glass ceilings are crumbling. Members of Congress are openly gay and bisexual. There's a black man in the White House, and a woman may be next. Voters have accepted all sorts of behavioral warts and missteps in their political candidates. Yet one large taboo remains stubbornly fixed, mental illness. And Alex Thompson goes on to say there's really uh, one really sick thing for a politician to admit to seeing a psychiatrist would likely be far more politically damaging than any of the possible symptoms of actual mental illness. The article is titled, Could America Elect a Mentally Ill President? Subtitle is, We Probably Already Have. And, uh, of course, the presidency stands in for perhaps other professions for which this stubborn stigma uh, persists. We want to talk about all this with uh, Alex Thompson, who's an editorial assistant with The New York Times, author, as I mentioned, this very interesting article in Politico magazine. Alex Thompson, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate you being on with me. Uh, what what caught your interest with this uh, subject matter? What uh, This is very interesting. You talk to a lot of people about this. Um, of course, it's very important, and we're in the middle of the presidential election. Uh, have you had a history of uh, reporting on this? Um, actually, this is the first time I tackled this topic, and I actually felt it was one of the first times anyone had tackled the topic. Mental illness has certainly been something that um, I'd read a lot about, I think, like a lot of people in America, you know, mental illness, either through friends or family, is something that I was aware of. And, you know, I mainly focus on politics from day to day, and it just kind of occurred to me, well, there's got to have, there, there have to be politicians out there that have also suffered from mental illness, yet we almost know none of them. So that was kind of my goal, is to see that this is a huge stigma, and it hasn't discouraged politicians, even presidents. Um, that had mental illness from running. And as you say, the, the millions of Americans, um, you know, are diagnosed, uh, seek psychiatric care, uh, take drugs for mental illness, uh, and a lot of those taboos have fallen. This one, I think you're right, is, is, is stubbornly still there. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's so odd. We have 40 million, uh, over 40 million American adults that take some form of psychiatric medication, all, at any time in, in America. You have a 400% increase in uh, antidepressant prescriptions in the last 25 years. And yet they've done surveys when it comes, when people are asked questions, well, would you be okay with someone with mental illness being your neighbor or being your coworker? Um, there still actually is a stigma in broader society about mental illness, even as we've accepted that, well, you should seek treatment for it. Mm-hmm. There's still a stigma against the person that has that mental illness, and I think that very much bleeds over into politics. And I think in lots of, and not just politics, but I think throughout society. As you pointed out in this, this opening paragraphs of your article that I read, uh, this is ironic and perhaps even dangerous. A, a politician cannot, in in today's world, admit to treatment for uh, you know psychiatric issues, and therefore you know, may not seek treatment and, and, and could, could snowball, could, could be dangerous. Yeah, I think this is the kind of the key point that I was trying to make is that, well, people say, well, the stigma is okay because you don't want someone with a mental illness in the Oval Office. You know, so I think some people would make that argument. And what I set out to prove, and you can see it um, throughout the article, is that actually 
we have had presidents in the Oval Office with mental illness, and they were scared to seek treatment. You have, you know, President Kennedy and President Nixon were both surreptitiously taking a lot of psychotropic medications. Um, it's unclear, you know, without us being able to go back and talk to them, it's very unclear exactly what they were suffering from. But they felt, um, they felt that they performed better if they could take some sort of psychotropic medications on a daily basis. And you have a lot of examples of presidents. Um, I talk a lot about President Johnson, you know, who could have maybe benefited. And the fact that a politician doesn't feel comfortable being able to take care of their mental health, especially one that has their finger on the nuclear button, um, it just seems crazier than just seems crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now, when I was uh, I was talking to a friend, I, I told her what what the subject was, um, and she made a crack about Donald Trump, and which, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I told her I'm gonna I'm gonna tread carefully with that one on the program, which I'm going to try to do because I feel uncomfortable, you know, making jokes about mental illness. I, I think we, <laughs> I think that'd be wrong. On the other hand, there's a whole industry of kind of you know pop psychology. Is Donald Trump a raging narcissist? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We we diagnose our political candidates. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are several books. I think every single presidency has uh, a bunch of people that go and they try to put the president on the couch and analyze them and see what they're doing. I think there was even a whole book about Bush on the couch um, when President when President W. Bush was in the was in the office, and I think. I think the key is that maybe there's there definitely should be dialogue, um, but there is, you know, I think I think and maybe it is too politically correct. I'm sure Donald Trump would think it is too politically correct to say that, you know, the word crazy that um, that we kind of use like you're crazy, you know, it, it kind of seems that maybe in the next ten to fifteen years that that might later be seen as kind of. Eh, um, you know, a, an epithet, an insult mm-hmm. uh, that kind of dem- diminishes something that tons of Americans suffer from. And just because you suffer from mental illness doesn't mean you're going to suffer from the rest of your life. It, it would be similar to saying that I have a health problem, but I'm not going to go see a doctor. Um, I mean, the difference between, you know, a mental health problem and a physical health problem, if you can even distinguish between the two, there probably shouldn't be a distinction. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I want to jump into some of these uh, specific examples. You do some reporting on, as you mentioned, LBJ, JFK, Nixon. Uh, first, I wonder if you tell me about your conversation with David Axelrod. He he had a very wry, very spot-on observation, I thought. This is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. Um, yeah, so he, he said that if, um, if President Obama came out to the country tomorrow and said, I see a psychiatrist or I take an antidepressant. Um, um, David said, uh, told me that, you know, every, that after that, every time that Obama said a crossword or expressed frustration, the assumption from voters and from other people would be, oh, he's just having one of those days. Mm-hmm. It colors every single decision he makes and it colors every single thing that he would do. And then, um, so his, his last comment was, so instead of letting, uh, you know, letting them see a psychiatrist, we just watch their hair turn gray. Yeah, and as you know, you may have noted, uh, President Obama's looking pretty gray. He is, and, and every president, you, you know, you show you show before and after, either you know, four years earlier or eight years earlier, uh, you have visual proof. This is a very stressful job. 
Absolutely. And the fact that, and the thing with mental illness is it's not, it, it is, we're still very much on the frontier of understanding the brain and mental illness. Um, but what we do know is that it is a combination of both circumstance and genetics. There have been people that have had the you know, identical twins where one person ends up having, you know, having a full-blown you know, mental illness and the other person doesn't, despite the same genetic material. And so we know that there are circumstances, um, and if you could think of a stressful circumstance that could maybe be a trigger for mental illness, I feel like the presidency may be right up there. Yeah, certainly. And Axelrod says, and we could just intuit this, that the pressures on a U.S. president are beyond anything we can imagine. I guess you have to, oh, you have to be there. Yeah. Uh, I want to uh, step back into history. You talk about Abraham Lincoln, and I think, we, I think we all have a vague notion, at least, that he suffered from depression, very black depression. Um, you talk to presidential historian Michael Beschloss, who says, you know, if, if people had known about his mental illness, and, and even up to maybe today, could Abraham Lincoln get uh, get elected? I don't know. But we would have lost our greatest president. Yeah, and that's and this is one of those weird questions, because if we had, obviously then, you know, the country would look very, very different. It might even still be divided. Yet at the same time, I mean, especially in this age of hyper-communication, um, hyper-information, is it even possible to hide this sort of thing anymore? Um, and in which case, maybe the solution... I mean, part of you wants to then say, okay, well, we'll just let the politicians keep it secret. We're going to let the politicians, you know, not have to disclose health records. But maybe the better answer, especially going forward, is that we have a situation where we can have an open dialogue about it and um, be able to accept that maybe, you know, a president can be able to see a psychiatrist from time to time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about, uh, about Lincoln. I, th- I think he did contemplate suicide. From time to time, he was bedridden for days at a time. Yeah, so he throughout his life he would have these humongous bouts of depression that could last weeks, and friends would go and visit him and just didn't understand what to do. And it didn't, you know, it also interfere with his professional life. When he was in the state legislature, in the state legislature, he would just he would miss votes. He just couldn't function, and doctors would come and. You know, at, at least at one point, he was taking these things that are called blue mass pills, which, um, you know, were try, tried to treat depression, even though they were a poisonous combination of ground mercury and with some uh, rose water and honey. And, you know, that's unfortunate. They didn't work. Another interesting thing that he did, you know, he had friends. And if anyone that suffered from depression would understand this, you know, he had friends that really cared about him. And one time they took him on this really extravagant, for the time, vacation during the summer. Tried to cheer him up, get him out in the country. And um, when he was coming back, he was writing a letter, um, you know, thanking them for the vacation. But he was still incredibly depressed. And he was on this steamboat and was, you know, the, the future great emancipator was looking at all these slaves that were on the ship. And instead of thinking about, you know, what great injustice it was and, um, and he couldn't believe it, the only thing that he could bring himself to think, and he wrote this in the letter, was, I don't understand how these people are, that have these terrible, these terrible conditions are happier than I am. I have these friends, these great friends that are treating me to a luxurious vacation, and I still can't be happy. 
And, you know, it, there is an argument to be made that because he survived that, because, you know, he didn't, there were times when we're, we think that he even was writing poetry about suicide. Um, but because he survived it, you, you can say that during the very depressing days, especially early in the Civil War, that it may have also given him a greater strength than um, someone that hadn't been through that uh, would have had. Certainly an argument, that, uh, you know, against the stigma. Uh, but the stigma does remain, doesn't it? Um, I wonder, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, get into a test case from uh, 1972. I think we're familiar with this. Thomas Eagleton had to step down because of the firestorm over uh, his seeking treatment earlier for, uh, for mental illness. More on this very interesting question. You can find a, a long discussion here in Political Magazine recently. Could America elect a mentally ill president? We're talking with the author, Alex Thompson. More following the break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged school children from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Emma Donahue is the author of Room, the harrowing story of a mother and son held captive. Room is now a feature film starring Brie Larson and William H. Macy. Guest host Rachel Giza chats with Donahue about adapting her novel for the big screen. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah, and Happy New Year. Could America elect a mentally ill president? That's the provocative title, a very interesting article in Political Magazine, published recently. The author is Alex Thompson, who's an editorial assistant at the New York Times. He writes, political taboos, campaign deal breakers, and electoral glass ceilings are crumbling, yet one large taboo remains stubbornly fixed, mental illness. He goes on to say that for a politician to admit seeing a psychiatrist would likely be far, far more politically damaging than any of the possible symptoms of actual mental illness. And uh, Alex Thompson, uh, in his reporting, uh, says we probably already have elected a mentally ill president. It's just that they could not disclose that. Um, we are uh, opening the phone lines here and the email. would love to get your perspective. What do you think? Could America elect a mentally ill president? Should we be open to that? Should that be a stigma taboo that remains? Um, would you vote for a presidential candidate if you knew that uh, they had sought treatment for mental illness? And are there professions, perhaps in your experience, there, where there's still a stigma? I want to hear about that as well. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. 
Uh, and you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Alex Thompson, uh, remind us of the history of Thomas Eagleton. This is George McGovern. He's running against uh, Richard Nixon. He selects, not knowing the history, uh, Senator Thomas Eagleton. Yeah, so Senator Eagleton was this young upstart senator. You know, some people even compared him to JFK. He was young, he was handsome, he had, you know, rose very, very quickly. And you know, Senator McGovern uh, kind of picked him, I think, as a third or fourth choice. You know, Senator McGovern wanted Ted Kennedy as his vice president and didn't work. And this was still back in the days where the convention really mattered. You know, there wasn't this huge rally with the you know, introducing the vice president. So McGovern kind of very quickly picked Senator Eagleton, assuming that if there was any really dark history, it would have been found out already. Um, and then slowly over the next uh, you know, week, 10 days, you know, all these anonymous phone calls started coming into campaign offices and, and, uh, newspa- and newspaper rooms. And slowly but surely, we found out that Thomas Eagleton had received electroconvulsive therapy at least twice in the previous 12 years for um, for depression, and it could have been it could have been more than that even. Um, you know, then, and it wasn't just you know Republicans that became upset about this. Um, even the New York Times, which um, was you know not exactly uh, very pro Nixon in 1972, editorialized that Senator Eagleton should step down from the ticket because. There was just no way to know if he could handle the pressures of the presidency. And, uh, you know, after about 18, I think it was 18 days, there's a book called, like, The 18-Year Candidate. After 18 days, uh, Senator Eagleton stepped down, and uh, the McGovern campaign, which was already uh, which was already low in the polls, sunk much lower because um, it was seen as chaotic, and they lost 49 states to Richard Nixon. And uh, Richard Nixon and... and uh Others, they framed this as a question of national security, didn't they? As, as you mentioned, finger on the button. Exactly, and um, you know, Gary Gary Hart, um, later Senator Gary Hart, was actually the campaign manager for McGovern in that race, and you know, he was one of the advocates for letting Eagleton off, and he said that if we kept him on then President Nixon would have just hammered them every single day. And there were hints that Nixon was already going to do this. Now, in the, his first press conference right after the announcement of Eagleton, he cited his own performance in, quote, stern crises and uh, told the press corps, I don't think anyone would question the state of my health, which was ironic considering that, unbeknownst to anyone there, he was taking, um, he had been, he had taken several psychotropic medications while vice president, and at least one time that we know about um, was taking Valium while he was was president. Yeah, un- underlines the point that the very man who is hurling the accusations, or ready to do so, <laughs> was himself taking drugs. Exactly, and you know, and um, but Nixon and JFK both very politically astute, you know, sensed that the public might not be ready because. Um, you know, Nixon, there was a, right after he won in 1968, a reporter uh, reported that he had seen a psychiatrist while he was vice president. And Nixon had all the dogs out and denied everything and said that actually they were just seeing him for his other medical practices that had nothing to do with psychiatry and, and denied everything and cut off all communications. Um, and this, but what actually, um, 
Nixon had his secretary go to the doctor in private correspondence and be like, actually, we still would like to have the medical records. Can you send us a copy of them? And those medical records show that he was taking you know, um, at least three different psychotropic medications a day while he was vice president. Now, what about uh, Eagleton went on to have a successful senatorial career, didn't he? He was reelected. Uh, this didn't hurt him in, in his home state. Uh, did he comment later on that uh, about these things? Uh, so he was actually re- he was reelected twice. He serves until 1987, and um, you know, and it seems by all accounts was very popular in Missouri. And according to you know his biographer, who probably did the most comprehensive biography, James Giglio, it didn't seem to affect him in the Senate. Um, Gary Hart uh, d- disagreed a little bit and felt that Eagleton had a very serious demeanor and was kind of um, tense. As, as he put it, but, uh, you know, it's a tense job. And Eagleton, Eagleton did not talk about it much. I mean, it was a very humiliating venture to be selected for vice president and then have to abandon the ticket. Uh, but we do know from interviewing with his psychiatrist that in 1983 he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And originally he had been diagnosed with depression when he had electroconvulsive therapy, and he was eventually put on lithium, which meant, which was a very common treatment for depression back then, and it meant that he was actually taking lithium while he was still senator for the last uh, few years of his Senate. And there isn't an, an indication, uh, at least that I could find, that it seriously affected him um, from serving as senator. So the, there is a, at least in his case, there was double standard. He, would, he was not accepted for the presidency, but he was okay, at least in his home state, to, to serve as senator. Exactly. And I think part of that is just, uh, that it's an interesting question. If, if he had just been taking pills, which we've never had that instance before, if he had just been taking pills, he probably, A, could have hit it a lot better um, than electroconvulsive therapy, since electroconvulsive therapy involves a lot of people and a lot of treatment. But then there's also the question of, um, then there's also the question of um, whether or not the public would be more accepting of pills versus electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, in fact, you you talk with a Mark Olfson, professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. He, he talks about that. There's some parts of mental illness that are stigmatized more than others these days. We we have an increased understanding, but maybe more to go. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the interesting part, is that we accept that there is a biological understanding of mental illness, yet there, when it comes to the people and whether or not we trust them and we interact with them, um, there still is very much this weariness, especially now that it's a biological understanding, maybe there's some permanency to it. Maybe that, you know, that these people need to be labeled an other now that we, under- now that we understand it actually is a biological disease. And there are some things I think we could probably all agree that, uh, that maybe would and should be disqualifying. You know, paranoid schizophrenia. Um, you know, maybe a few others. Um, exactly, and I don't think we know where that line is yet. Maybe because we haven't tested it. But it's obvious that there. I think we can agree that if someone has a mild anxiety disorder or someone has maybe obsessive compulsive disorder, there are definitely some you know mental illnesses that I think we could be comfortable with. But yes, if someone's having severe, uh, you know, paranoid delusions, I mean, there there is a limit to where 
you know, the public's, public should maybe be understanding when it comes to the person that has the nuclear football with the models at all times. And since the stakes are so high, and that's one of the factors here, isn't it, with the presidency, they, you know, they hold the nuclear football, finger on the button. Uh, do you think we tend to, speaking all of us collectively, you think we tend to lump all this together, you know, that, that we maybe don't parse out paranoid schizophrenia versus, you know, anxiety? Well, I think that's true. I mean, it's it's odd, you know, the fact that we label everything mental illness when, you know, if someone has the flu or someone has cancer, we don't just say they have physical illness. Um, and so it is kind of odd that I think the labeling of someone has mental illness, I think that helps contribute to the fact that we group all of those things together. That is true. Yeah, we don't we don't say someone has a physical illness. We don't lump everything together, you know, cancer with you know, whatever it is, the flu. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, I wonder if I'd like to talk a little about Lawton, about Lawton Childs. This brings us forward to the early 1990s. Um, former senator in Florida, right? And then he was running for governor, and he disclosed treatment for mental illness. Exactly. So Lawton Childs had been a very popular senator and would have easily won re-election if he had decided to run in um, 1988. But he surprised everyone by announcing an early retirement. He was chairman of a very powerful committee at the time, and he just decided that it wasn't for him. And unbeknownst to a lot of friends, um, including colleagues, you know, I even talked to Senator Gary Hart, and he had no idea, but Lon Shells was suffering from very severe depression and wasn't being treated and just would look, you know, he called it um, not just the blacks, but the black blacks. And he, um, and then, Right after he left the Senate, he went to a doctor, and he, was, and he got treated by Prozac, with Prozac, which had just hit the market right around this time, and began feeling better. And, um, you know, he wasn't really thinking about a political future since he had already resigned, but then decided um, to get back in the arena and ran for governor, admitted that he had taken Prozac, and also, but also anticipating the political attacks that were going to come, he said... Uh, that he was no longer going to take it anymore. And he had a, his doctor release a letter saying, I'm, I, he's good to go, he doesn't need it, he's re- completely resolved his depression. Um, but as um, anyone with maybe depression will, will know, sometimes just sheer will is not enough. And several months later, he started feeling the blacks again and um, admitted in the middle of the race, basically four months till election day, that he went back on Prozac. And, um, you know, his opponents pounced. Um, one of his primary opponents suggested that he didn't, that he didn't want to have a suicide in the governor's mansion. Another said that, um, another said that, you know, it raised serious questions about his ability to perform. And the future Republican opponent said that, you know, he had been very, that Lawton had been very, very clear that, you know, he didn't need this and, you know, he needs the answer to the voters. And, you know, he admitted it, and the voters uh, the voters went and actually elected him anyway, which kind of gave some hope that maybe if there were was a politicians that had been in the pro, in the post Prozac era, maybe voters would be a little bit more understanding. And in fact, one of those um, opponents, Democratic Representative Bill Nelson, who I think went on to become Senator Governor from from Florida, he says he now regrets his statements about. Uh, Yeah, he is actually currently still senator of Florida. Oh, he's still senator, yeah. And, 
and he, um, when we, uh, when I contacted his office, he sent back uh, an email to his representative saying that if he knew what he knew now, he would have never made some of those comments. And uh, so it gives you, it gives you hope that maybe some people are changing. Then you saw the case of a, a Democratic representative, Lynn Rivers. This is around that time, right, 1994, became the first openly bipolar member of Congress, went on to serve several more terms. So there's at least, you know, at least uh, Lynn Rivers. Um, and she it, was the first member of Congress, and I think still only the first member of Congress to have bipolar disorder, um, which is more, you know, which is more significant than just taking Prozac. And, yeah. You know, she admitted that you know some days there would be bad days, some days to be good. But she, by acknowledging it, she was able to really manage it and control it, and had people around her that you know made her an, a very effective representative. So these are hopeful. Um, yeah, anecdotes. They both were open about it. Yeah. before they were elected. Then you go on to say though that it's it's the stigma still remains even in Congress, uh, and you cite uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He was, I guess, gearing up, we've learned, uh, to attack Ashley Judd on some mental health issues. She was, she exactly. was, uh, she was uh, mulling a run against him for the Senate. Exactly. And there was a surreptitious recorded conversation with um, Senator McConnell and his campaign team, basically saying, lay, laying out all of her liabilities. And the one, you know, they, they talk about her being, quote-unquote, unstable. And you know, and Ashley Judd had written about these things openly in a memoir, but that didn't matter. It was still being seen as well. This could be used against her, and in, um, and that was just this last election cycle, 2014. And in that same cycle in Texas, you had the lieutenant governor, the allies, the lieutenant governor, uh, release a court a court affidavit um, that had revealed his opponent had had psychiatric treatment in the 80s, and. You know, so there, it's still a go-to weapon in many, many ways. Are there, so two related questions. First of all, are, are there members of Congress currently or in the recent past who have sought treatment for, for, you know, psychiatric issues? And the second question related, is there anybody who admits it? Uh, well, the answer to the first question is absolutely. There are many, many, many. And... We just don't know who they are. There's one who we know, and his name's uh, Ruben Gallejo, and he's a congressman from Arizona, and he was an Iraq War veteran, signed up, and was in some of the heaviest combat in Iraq. And he came back, and you know he openly says, "Listen, I, I suffer from PTSD," and he doesn't feel he doesn't want other veterans to feel like that it's their fault or that they're not tough enough. And uh, so he's been very, I mean, he's, he's been relatively open, slowly but surely he's opened up more and more about it um, as a way of trying to be representative for other veterans out there and to not, you know, to decrease some of the, the shame. But, you know, and I worked on this article for, for many, many months and, and tried to get many congressmen who, you know, I, I had tips about or, um, you know, try to go on the record about, you know, maybe, about maybe... Uh, you know, suffering from mental illness or, you know, at least maybe even just a time 30 years ago where, you know, they got treated for depression, but no one wanted to. It's just a, it's a political liability and no one wants to take the leap. It's still that much of a stigma. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. They're just, they're scared exactly of what David Axrod was saying, which is that 
every single action from then on is going to be seen through that lens of mental illness. Yeah. If you, you know, if you're super happy one day, it's like, oh, he's on his meds or he's trying really hard. Or if you're sad, it's like, oh, it's the depression. Like your 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 emotions will no longer seem your own. They'll no longer seem rational. Let's take another break. When we come back, more uh, on this very provocative question: Could America elect a mentally ill president? That's the title of the article in Political Magazine. We're talking with the author Alex Thompson, who's an editorial assistant at the New York Times. Phone lines are open and uh, email open as well. We'll get to an email from uh, Ben in Moab, uh, coming up uh, following the break. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. Toll free anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And I want to address this quote in the article. Uh, this is from uh, Nancy Reagan. Uh, in 1981, she told Family Circle magazine, getting psychiatric treatment means that you are not really trying to get hold of yourself. It's sloughing off your own responsibilities. Uh, I'm going to throw that out to you and, and to our guest. Uh, here is, do we think that's still the attitude? More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary. Empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. As 2016 gets underway, presidential politicking goes into full swing. Living on Earth will be with you throughout the campaign tracking candidates. So far, all the Democrats call for action on the climate, while the only Republican to embrace cap-and-trade has dropped out of the race. I'm Steve Kerwood. Be sure to join me next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about this question, could America elect a mentally ill president? There's a lengthy and interesting article in Politico magazine uh, we're encouraging you to check out by Alex Thompson with that title. Subtitle is, we probably already have. And Alex Thompson, who's an editorial assistant at the New York Times, uh, cites um, LBJ, JFK, and Nixon, uh, who were surreptitiously taking uh, some, some pretty heavy-duty drugs to treat probably to treat some mental illness. Uh, LBJ, uh, I don't think we know about him in terms of drugs, but JFK and Nixon certainly were. Um, and so we probably already have elected um, some successful uh, presidents with some psychiatric issues. But could uh, a presidential candidate who is openly admitted to uh, treatment for mental illness, could such a person get elected? And I think the the answer is, uh, we don't know. It's kind of doubtful, <laughs> just given this, the state of Congress, for example. Uh, we are looking for your response to this. And what do you think about other professions? Uh, are there still stigma in other professions? Um, and uh, how do we break down those stigmas? 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, Alex Thompson, I want to run this past you. you. You include this in your article. This is 1981. Nancy Reagan, who's first lady at the time, told Family Circle magazine, getting psychiatric treatment means that you're not really trying to get a hold of yourself. It's sloughing off your own responsibilities. Do you think we still have that attitude? There's actually been a few 
very comprehensive studies that look at public attitudes. And it is clear that in the last 35 years, public opinions on this have changed substantially. At the time when she made those comments, the majority of Americans um, you know, agreed with that sentiment, that psychiatric care wasn't a biological disease. It was more of a you know, personal failing. And over the last 35 years, you know, with the introduction of, of you know, more drugs and also just people being more open and honest about mental illness, you know, you know, people writing mental illness memoirs and, and the like, that we've seen that people now accept a biological understanding. I think the surprise for a lot of scientists has been that with that added biological understanding, the stigma has actually lingered in a lot of those surveys when people are asked if people, if people are asked, you know, do you want this person working next to you? Do you want this person as your neighbor? Because it's being understood as being biological, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it's immutable. You know, it can't be changed. This person is defective, I think, is um, maybe some of, some of the attitude, which, you know, is, is really unfortunate that on either one of these attitudes, even with a more enlightened understanding of what causes mental illness, you still have a very unaligned reaction to it as someone that is other. That is I can understand it. I, I believe I can understand that, that attitude. But, again, you take mental off the illness, just describe it as an illness. We treat successfully many illnesses which have biological basis. Exactly. And also just the, the sheer number of people now getting psychiatric care. I mean, you have basically you have over a fifth of American adults now have are getting psychiatric care at any at any time. So um, I do think that perhaps through this open dialogue, maybe it's changing. Whether or not that that will go over into the very you know rough and tumble world of politics, I don't think we know. And you know, if in in all likelihood, you know, how many pre- how many people we have running for president? I mean, it, at least at one point it was over twenty. Um, some of them are dropping out, but. You know, over 20, and you have 20% of American adults getting psychiatric care. I mean, just by, if you just take the sheer percentages, then there's almost certainly. And these are people that have very high-pressure jobs. And then you look at Congress with its 435 members, you know, House of Representatives, then you, and you do 20% of that. It's a, it's a really, really high number. Um, and so it's just kind of puzzling. It, I guess someone will probably have to take the leap. Um, but it's unclear if they're going to be doing it willingly. Mm-hmm. It may just be that they're exposed, and then we'll just see where the public is. Yeah, I think you're right. Nobody wants to be that test case willingly. Um, here is Ben in Moab, um, who's emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com. You can as well. Your guest gave the scenario of a president confessing his mental illness and the implications of the stigma, that is, every decision the president made could then be misdiagnosed as an episode. Uh, This reminded me of concerns for electing a female president. Every moment of her time as president uh, could be blamed on her hormones. This, of course, could not be appropriate or accurate, but could definitely be exploited, especially by the media. The stigma, however, is attached to her sex rather than publicly announced or private illness. These things considered, maybe all stigmas should be abandoned because stigmas do not allow an accurate display of a person's ability or talent. Just a few thoughts. That's Ben in Moab. That's a really great point, and you had you had a lot of that talk in, in 08 about 
well, what if, you know, what if some people were saying, well, what if Hillary is PMSing? And all of those kind of, you know, I think very ignorant comments. And I think the question is, you know, where, I mean, the stigmas in some cases are rational, right? As we, as we discussed, there's a reason why you wouldn't want someone with schizophrenia in the Oval Office. And so I think the, the question is, are all stigmas bad? I'm not sure, but there certainly are, are stigmas that are very unenlightened, as, uh, as the one of, you know, can, woman, can a woman have her hand on the nuclear button, uh, you know, four weeks out of the month. In all your reporting, what do you come down to, I wonder, in terms of uh, prediction or, or uh, where this is going to go? As you mentioned, a lot of taboos, some taboos and stigmas that we thought would hold on for longer have fallen. What do you think about mental illness? I think just by the sheer number of people taking psychiatric drugs that, and, and with the enormous industry that is the opposition research industry in the political world, that more and more people are going to be exposed unwillingly for taking psychiatric medication. And then we're going to see what happens. I mean, there are encouraging signs. I mean, Lynn Rivers... Uh, was reelected several times and was open about having bipolar disorder. You also had, you know, even with the Texas race, this lieutenant governor race last cycle, where they revealed court, do- they leaked court documents showing that he'd been treated for psychiatric care. You know, he still won, and um, so there maybe are signs that that it could happen before it gets to the presidential level. Before you know, I think the American public would feel comfortable. Uh, you know, having electing someone that they knew had a prescription for Prozac or Balto or the like, I think we're probably going to have to see it on the lower level. You're going to have to see a governor. You're going to have to see a senator. You have to see members of Congress. You know, in the same way that a lot of the other stigmas broke down. You had, you know, women in Congress. You had women in the Senate. You had, um, you know, uh, African Americans in the House. You had African Americans in the Senate in the state houses. And just slowly but surely. I think that's the way it has to be. And on the politicians' side, even if it isn't, I mean, I think the biggest thing that could be done is if you have more people uh, like Patrick Kennedy, who I mentioned in the article, who if you have a politician that is open and honest about suffering from depression or anxiety, that goes a long way too. I mean, hopefully we won't have to wait for people to just be exposed unwillingly. But in terms of uh, predictions, uh, politics can make you kind of cynical. So uh, I think it's probably more likely that we'll have people being unwillingly outed, as it were. Does, now, you cite some uh, some concrete examples. Uh, you go back and look at JFK. Uh, he was definitely taking some drugs. Um, Nixon, uh, LBJ, not, not drugs, but uh, his biographer apparently says that his, uh, I'll quote you here, 1965 to late 1967, when Johnson had ramped up America's troop presence in Vietnam to from 15,000 to nearly half a million, his eccentricities began to seem worrisome. And people looking back say he could have could have used some some help, perhaps. And yet these presidents are seen as successful. Uh, they did have some uh, failings, but I think those are not seen as uh, based on mental illness. Uh, looking back and seeing that, do you do you think that helps? Do you think that would Change I mean, I, I sure hope so, because I think, you know, I think there's this this question, well, can we survive? Again, it always, it really does come back uh, very often to that nuclear button issue, and people are like, well, can we survive if someone has mental illness? And I think my point was that, like, we actually survived several presidents that had mental illness 
during the height of the Cold War when things were most tense. You know, you have you have JFK, you know, in, in two months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, taking Stelzine, which is a enormously powerful tranquilizer that is often reserved for people that have um, that have psychosis, that have a psychotic disorder, and but it can be used to treat severe anxiety. And the fact that he felt that he was better off, that he was a better president by taking these drugs, you know, it it just goes to show that maybe maybe we should just let presidents be able to treat their mental health care. Especially, I think I think the point is that of all people, we shouldn't be scared of presidents seeking mental health care. Of all people, we should want them to, because these are the people that really need to be mentally healthy. And we have had a lot of presidents that weren't. And I think the point is that well. Eventually, now that we know that JFK was taking drugs, that Nixon was taking drugs, that Johnson was, you know, just, I mean, described by his own aides as probably being, you know, manic depressive or some sort of combination of a very, you know, manic and depressed behavior, that we should just be be more accepting of future presidential candidates. I want to just have uh, about three minutes left. I want to. Uh... Uh, take a step sideways here. There's another interesting article in Politico uh, diagnosing the urge to run for office. I don't know if you're familiar with that article, but you'd pr- probably have heard these. And, and it's kind of a cliche. We all say it. I've said it. you got to be crazy to run for president um, just because it's such a gauntlet. Uh, but the, but then the flip side of that is, you know, we, we like to diagnose, for example, some subtitles here. Grandiose narcissism levels are higher in more recent than earlier presidents. Uh, you know, people <clears throat> make a living doing this kind of thing. The winner every time, uh, one expert says, has been the most hypomanic. Um, I, I, you know, even the non-experts like to diagnose the candidates. I don't know what that says about us or <laughs> about them, about the situation. I mean... Given how how uh, what a gauntlet running for president is, it certainly does not seem to uh, to seem very rational to want to run for president anymore. Um, so maybe it is just attracting people that uh, that have that have some some problems. But I'm not. I think. I guess I'm I I'm hopeful that this kind of conversation is just the beginnings of a broader one. The fact that we are thinking about someone's psyche. And their state of mind while running, even if it is a little uh, reductive, and we're talking about little things. I think that that considering someone's mental state is um, is fair. I think it's important. I think I think the problem is that we need to have someone that you know is very comfortable managing and taking care of their own mental state. And sometimes that requires, you know, you seeing a psychiatrist. Sometimes it means you taking drugs. And I hope that, um, I hope that just the conversation becomes, this is the beginnings of something more. What do you think it's going to take? As you mentioned before, uh, more members of Congress open about this, more governors, and then we'll get ready for an openly mentally ill president. Yeah, or you know, maybe what's going to happen is there's going to be a president who, in the middle of his in the middle of his time of office, says, "Listen, I I took antidepressants when I was younger," or you know, it would take an act of courage to do that. Or maybe there's a president that really feels he needs it while in office, and again feels that there's a a strong moment, and so maybe you're going to have someone leading from the top. 
you know, it just uh, all it takes is one president, all it takes is one person, and that could really change the stigma for a long, long time. Um, but in terms of what, how it, you know, in terms of likelihood, I think it probably will start on the lower offices. But all it takes, as I said, all it takes is one. You just need one president to go out there and say, listen, I'm on antidepressants. Lots of other presidents have been on antidepressants or the like. And I am a better president because I am taking care of my mental health. Well, it's a very interesting question, an important question to consider. Appreciate you taking the time to consider it with us. Alex Thompson is an editorial assistant with the New York Times. He's written an interesting article. We urge you to, to go and uh, take a look at it. Political magazine, Could America Elect a Mentally Ill President? Alex Thompson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tom. Coming up uh, tomorrow, we're going to be uh, talking about rural West. Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. It's out from University of Utah Press. And we'll be talking with the author, historian David Danbaum. That is uh, coming up tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Robin Young. Ah, the holidays when family members gather together to look separately at their smartphones. Sherry Turkle says we've unconsciously decided it's okay if at least three other people are talking. The social rules that we've developed around our phones are, are, are getting us into trouble. Next time on Here and Now. Join us Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Ice Age, Despicable Me, and Minions, and the guy who's helped to make all of them. It's the most collaborative medium that I've ever been part of or actually ever seen. I'm Molly Wood. How the man behind some beloved animated characters stays creative. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. A month after he became a U.S. citizen, composer Igor Stravinsky wrote his symphony in three movements. The New York Philharmonic premiered the piece in 1946. We'll hear a much more recent performance by that same band in New York. Alan Gilbert conducting the symphony in three movements on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Monday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. I'm still hoping that the best of 2015 is yet to come. My best day of the year so far was October 16th. That day my wife and I were celebrating my birthday even though it wasn't really my birthday. We do birthday weekends and birthday week. Unlike some old people who don't want to admit another year has passed, we ignore that part of the equation and focus instead on the joy of sleeping in and eating pizza. That day included stromboli pizza and a trip to a real college football game where the good guys won. I had a friend who had given us the kind of tickets that were so close to the field that you could actually see the numbers on the uniform. October 16th was nearly beat out by December 2nd, the day I got offered a full-time job working with some really great people. It's the kind of position that requires you to wear big boy pants and includes an office, benefits, and actual paychecks. That day's efforts to come out on top were hindered by the fact that half of that day was spent preparing for a job interview, which was more stressful than having a dentist with hiccups dressed as a clown doing a root canal on you during an earthquake. I'm sure you can all relate to that. I'm still hoping that there's a day or two before January 1st that could still take the top spot as the best day of the year. By a show of hands, 
Who remembers Christmas of 2015? This column should air just a few days after Christmas. And for those of you in the future, Christmas now seems like it was years ago, doesn't it? Why is that? In my world, it's still coming. I'm looking forward to it. I rank my days. I write a little paragraph about what happened that day, and I slot it in the lineup. If you read my rank days from bottom to top, 2015 was a story that started very sad and ended up with celebrations, pizza, a football win, and new pants. Even though we didn't have TV for much of the year, football still managed to influence the rankings quite a bit. Our television was still working on February 1st, for example, and the recording of a last-second intercepted Seahawks pass seriously hurt that day's prospects, dropping it to where it is now at number 64. Some self-help experts will tell you that no one can make you feel bad. Well, clearly that's wrong because everyone knows that an intercepted pass can indeed make you feel awful. There were worse things that happened than wayward footballs in 2015s, and I think, overall, if I'd known what was coming, I would have skipped the year. While I don't often see the world short-term through rose-colored glasses, I do when it comes to looking to a new year. I truly believe that I will become a buff, fit person in 2016 who will have to buy all new clothes and who will look happy enough to appear in a drug commercial. We also have two grandkids coming, and I'm hoping at least one of them will be able to mow the lawn for me before the end of summer. Things will be better in 2016. I'm one of the only people I know who looks forward to setting goals and making resolutions. To not do so, to me, is like starting a chant before a football game that says, I believe that we will lose. That's not the way I approach life or football. I believe the best days of 2016 are yet to come. I'm planning on it. I hope the Seahawks are too. This is Steve Eaton. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.